my brother who works in palliative care, I mentioned that earlier, mm. he, he has argued uh, uh, very much, I'd cite him indeed in the book, um, for the importance of, of tactile um, asclepian healing uh, for those who are dying, because you can't cure. You can't cure death, yeah. But you can heal people of their death anxieties, yes, of their of their panic and their fear, because that's even worse. Yeah. The psychic pain of fear is even worse than, or certainly as bad as uh, very often as a physical pain, which can be treated and and should and must be treated, you know, with with painkillers. But it, there's the psychic pain, yeah, that can only be treated in this asclepian fashion of being with being with and that's a very tangible tactile experience hello and welcome to chasing the Viathan. i'm your host pj weary and i'm here today with dr richard kearney uh, Dr. Kearney holds the Charles B. Seelig Chair of Philosophy at Boston College and has served as a visiting professor at the University College Dublin, the University of Paris-Sorbonne, the Australian Catholic University, and the University of Nice. He's the author of over 24 books on European philosophy and literature, including two novels and a volume of poetry, and has edited or co-edited 21 more. Dr. Kearney, so happy to have you here today. A pleasure to be with you. And today we're going to talk about your newest book, which is uh, Touch obviously by yourself. Um, and kind of the guiding question I thought we would go through is how has our dive into the digital space affected our sense of touch? And what are the consequences for the human experience? So mm. again, happy to have you. If you don't mind giving us how, what made you think of this question in particular? And um, yeah, again, pleasure to have you on. Well, I think one of the reasons this became an urgent question for me was uh I was witnessing in my uh, classes uh, as I teach, uh, you know, the younger generations coming up and just in the social world around me, um, the culture uh, here in here in North America. I actually, you know, was born and grew up in, in, in Ireland and then studied in Paris and Canada. But I've been living here in the, in the United States in, in Boston for the last 21 years and uh, have been very aware uh, living here, but it's true of the entire world now, that the digital has become such a huge factor in our lives and in the way in which we communicate with each other. And this was, of course, accentuated uh, in the recent um, COVID crisis, which has not yet left us. Alas, we're struggling through, but we learned an awful lot, I think, about uh, just how important the digital <laughs> uh, is for us as a civilization to communicate with each other through distance when we are, for example, not able to do so in person because of, of, of COVID infection and contagion. Um, so, so we became extremely aware that we could nonetheless um, go through our silver screens <laughs> and our technical screens um, our touch screens, literally, mm, yeah, uh, with the touch of a finger. And this is the curious paradox of the digital, that in fact, um, our, our digital universe is now virtual. Um, but we do talk of a touch screen, which ironically enables us to move beyond our tactile bodies and relate to others in a virtual simulated way. And yet digital also carries the sense not just of a code, a communication code, 
a cyber code but our fingers. Yes. And uh, that is the irony. We we touch the touch screen to escape from touch, if you like, or to go to transcend touch. Yeah. And so I think in, in this um, experience of that paradox, we also became aware not just of how wonderful it is to be able to use this um, medium of communication, uh, digital technology, but also of what we've lost mm. in terms of uh, leaving our bodies behind us, our real lived bodily experience behind us. And this, again, became very evident during covid when we missed hugging people, we missed proximity, whether it be in a concert stadium, a football stadium, a pub, a restaurant, any kind of public setting, a schoolroom. In my case, you know, yeah. all, all my uh, communications with students was 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 through uh, was through virtual communication, you know, through through through, through Canvas, through through Zoom, and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, as Joni Mitchell said in her famous 1968 song, I think it was, "You don't know what you've got till it's gone." And when we lost touch with touch, we became aware of just how important touch is. And we saw this very dramatically and tragically mm. um, uh, in those scenes where people were dying and were not able to to be with their loved ones. Yeah. And they, they reached out to to touch and be touched. And it was the caretakers and the doctors who who bore witness to this. Uh, and it was it was very, very um, painful. For loved ones not to be with those um, in person, you know, with tactile presence, just holding their hands yeah. when when they died uh, of of COVID. So, um, you know, the first thing uh, we do when we're born is we we touch and we are touched. The child reaches out to to be touched, and the last thing we do when we die is to reach out to be touched. So, it is um, a touch uh, hunger phenomenon that uh, we became acutely aware of. Uh, over the last two years. Absolutely. Um, and we even see that reflected in uh, with COVID. Uh, there was that constant discussion of the cost of lockdown, right? It's not just mm -hmm. that we we also lost people to, um, and I can't remember the uh, specific term, but basically deaths of depression because mm -hmm. they were cut mm -hmm. off from the outside world. And it's yeah. a very yeah. similar thing. Um, you know, you've mentioned it a couple times here, um, that whole phenomenon of uh, touching and being touched. Uh, the mm. idea that, uh, you know, you mentioned Aristotle said it touches the foundation of all the senses. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, the other and the way that touch, because you cannot, you can see without being seen, but you cannot touch without mm. being touched. Um, yeah. How does that figure into our experience of the other? I think you even call it maybe the mm -hmm. fundamental uh, or the most important experience of the other in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to go into that just before I do. I want sure. to pick up on something you said yes, sir. a moment ago about depression. Yeah. Uh, and this course will, we lead into the importance of touch, but um, it, it is a phenomenon um, observed by the way, statistically uh, well before COVID that the more time people spend, particularly the younger generations, uh, online, mm -hmm. uh, the more solitary they become. Yes. And the more they suffer from depression. Yes. It, it, so here again, touch hunger com, com, comes into play because the more hyper-connected we are digitally in terms of digital codes, the more solitary, isolated and anguished we become at the level of our digital 
connections in terms of body to body contact. Yeah. And this is an extraordinary phenomenon that technology overcomes distance, but it doesn't bring nearness. And that is one of the great uh, paradoxes and perplexities of our of our digital civilization. I mean, I think the answer, and I argue for this in the book, is both, uh, both senses of the digital. I mean, we need uh, digital technology. There's no way we, we, we should renounce that and go back to some, you know, uh, pastoral, you know, pastor land, pre, pre-enlightenment, pre-industrial. Um, You're not you know, a Luddite. We're, we're, no, I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> we need to keep our technology in one hand, but our our touch alive, our tactile sensitivity uh, in the other. And and here we come back to, you know, your your question, a broader question about uh, touch bringing us into contact with the other. So let me let, let me go back to the beginning of the Western philosophy of touch with with Aristotle, as you rightly say, and to some extent in a, in a dispute with Plato, the two great founders of, of, of Greek Western philosophy. And Aristotle says in his first book of of human psychology, um, certainly in our Western civilization, uh, the De Anima was called on the soul. He points out that touch is the most fundamental of our senses because basically it brings us into contact with the other, the other person, but other living beings, other sentient beings. It can also be the animal universe and so on. Um, because you can see without being seen, as, as you mentioned, you can hear without being heard. Um, you can taste without being tasted, but you cannot touch without being touchable, touched or touchable, tangible. So there is a nakedness and a vulnerability and a hypersensitivity about our tactile being. Skin is our largest, largest organ. It's a wraparound organ apart from hair and our nails. It covers our entire, uh, our entire body, two square meters, in fact, an average adult. And, um, uh, as such, we cover up, of course, for, for all kinds of necessary reasons. Uh, but the basic vulnerability remains. And that vulnerability for Aristotle was a good thing mm. because it kept us open to otherness. You could look and never be seen by anybody else, at least in theory. In fact, it was one of the fantasies of a platonic figure called Gyges, that you could become all powerful if you wore a certain magic ring and suddenly you became invisible, but you could see everybody else. And this, of course, is what's permitted also uh, with our digital uh, media. Yeah, we can see others without being seen. I mean, we can live in a in a world of of of, of games, you know, uh, video games and and movies and and social media and whatnot, and never actually be be seen. I mean, yeah. pornography is an obvious case. Yeah. in terms of sexuality, everything can go through the optical fantasy, hmm. but there is no uh, two way process. Yeah. You are you are seeing but not being seen. So it's the reversibility, the recursivity, uh, the reciprocity of touching and being touched, which for Aristotle made us sensitive beings and as such alert to and attuned to to other people and therefore more philosophical because we are questioning ourselves and not remaining within ourselves, which sight allows. Um, so in that sense, um, he says it is our most philosophical sense, our most intelligent sense, because we're constantly open to surprise, to something happening to us rather than us controlling and mastering everything that happens out there, turning everybody else into an object. And that's where Aristotle differed from Plato, because Plato defined the human 
as anthropos, hence our word anthropology. And anthropos means the one who, who, who reaches up, who looks up, anthropos. Um, and of course, for, our, for Plato, that meant uh, standing up uh, uh, on, our, on our own two feet, so to speak, and reaching up with our eyes towards, towards the heavens. And that made us intelligent, according to Plato, transcending our quadruped existence with other sentient beings, which for Plato was kind of um, hazardous. Uh, our tactile bodies were hazardous because right. we were constantly vulnerable to the material pressures of the world. But through sight, we could have this mastery. And this led eventually to um, to, to to Descartes' famous uh, statement as he sort of inaugurated modern Western philosophy uh, with the I think, therefore I am. He could have said, I see, therefore I am. Yeah. It amounts to the same thing. Uh, that we become masters and possessors of nature. And that we did. We lived in, since Plato through Descartes, right down into our own 21st century, and the digital civilization technology accentuates this. Um, we live in a universe where we're in charge and nature has become an object. And we've seen with the climate crisis uh, exactly how dangerous that optocentric um, worldview has become. We have turned nature into an object um, uh, to our own, or in terms of our own mastery, subject to us. Absolutely. Um, and I actually had written down here uh, uh, to ask you about the question concerning technology, because it does seem pretty obvious, even as we're talking about the climate crisis, uh, that when Heidegger talks about us squaring things off to fit that, to enframe them, to fit them mm -hmm. into the way we see things, it's much easier to see something and recognize a shape inside it and cut off the rough mm -hmm. corners. Whereas if you're touching mm -hmm. something, like yeah. you know, the rough corners are always there. They're all like, um, it, something I wanted to, uh, see it, make sure I'm tracking with you. Uh, when, and I think it's in his politics, I could be wrong, but Aristotle talks about man as a fundamentally social animal. Do you think that's part of the reason that that definition, uh, kind of connects with his, um, dispute with Plato? The fact that man is inherently a social animal and that's a, that is a touch oriented thing. Yes. Um, you can be a solipsist, that is to say, uh, alone in your ivory tower, solus ipse from the Latin, um, living in your own little ivory tower, you know, fantasy world um, without seeing anybody else. In fact, some people, you know, I read something in the Guardian newspaper. Somebody was saying, I like COVID because I don't want to be <laughs> in constant contact with other bodies. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. I like I like my own world and I'm quite sufficient in my digital universe. I mean, we even have Facebook now on, under its new reinvented guys, Meta. Yes. So sort of promising us the, the 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 ability one day to create our own our, our own sort of fantasy simulated selves, yeah. you know, an, an, an android, an avatar. Um, a cyborg yeah. that will be our own digital clone. And in that instance, we will be free from disease, certainly free from other human beings if we don't want to, because we have our own perfectly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, immaculate world, you know, um, pure and, and pristine and not vulnerable to the vicissitudes and contingencies of material, messy existence. So, yes, I think Aristotle knew that because we are tactile and tangible beings, um, subject to this reciprocity principle of touching and being touched, we are social. We are social animals. And it's very interesting during COVID um, how 
therapy through touch became actually so important. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, uh, uh, deep tissue massage and so on. That was that was very important, too. And and doctors uh, made it very clear, Dr. Meniel in Paris, for example, that all his patients should be touched um, where possible. Yeah. Um, and, and this is not just uh, in, in relation to COVID. It, it's in relation to, to dying. It's in relation to disease. People who if you if you if you shake somebody's hand before you, you know, operate on them surgically, they will heal better afterwards. I mean, really? it's a very basic point. Yes, huh. it absolutely it creates a rapport with the healer. My, my brother is a heart surgeon working in Ireland and and he has observed this. And, but it's also been, you know, um, uh, clinically, clinically verified that uh, forms of person to person contact and communication prior to and subsequent to surgical intervention um, uh, greatly increase the, the rate of recovery. And at a very basic level, physiologically, uh, touch, you know, it lowers our blood pressure. Mm. It um, lowers cortisol, the stress levels. It, it alleviates anxiety helps with sleep and digestion just basic basic physiological physiological facts and factors that are that are so 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 crucial uh and so it's interesting you've mentioned this a couple uh i love the way that this conversation kind of flow ebbs and flows and goes around um as a i'm i'm a devout christian and uh presbyterian uh and so when you talk about the term excarnation mm-hmm. um, versus incarnation, I assume that's kind of, <laughs> I want to know, where did you get the term excarnation? And as we talk about yeah. this loss of, you know, you're talking about the silver tower, mm-hmm. the ivory tower, excuse me. Yeah. Um, obviously that's people like when people talk about becoming a cyborg, in many ways, they're talking about fully inhabiting the digital space and they're becoming excarnate. Yes. Where did that term come from and what are the consequences of our ex- excarnation? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the term uh, came from my teacher in, in Montreal uh, in the, in the late seventies, um, Charles Taylor, who uses it, uh, you know, in, used in his classes, but also in, in his book, um, the age of modernity. And, uh, Basically, what he means, uh, and that's the meaning that I take up, is an alternative to uh, the incarnate universe. So, excarnation is the opposite of incarnation. And incarnation for Taylor is for me, um, as for you, I gather, it does have a, a Christian ring. I, too, have a Christian formation. Um, so, I, I took very seriously uh, at a religious level, but, you know, I take Aristotle seriously at a philosophical <laughs> level, who argues for incarnation or embodied social existence in the world with other people who are tactile and, and, and tangible relationships. Um, and by the way, that can also include, just want to mention this in parenthesis yeah. before coming back to Christianity, that this includes at a social level being touched by people. You don't literally have to be in physical proximity, though we usually mean that. Hmm. But our colloquial phrases of being touched by somebody or finding something touching is a way in which our bodies, our emotions, our feelings are in fact uh, animated and altered by our relationships to other people. So sometimes the most touching form of touch can be to not touch. You know, there are appropriate forms of touch and not touching, but the body still remains tactile. I mean, we're still picking up vibrations from the the other person's uh, physical presence, even mm-hmm. though we may not be, you know, literally touching the person. We are by proxy 
in touch with the person. And to be in real communication is to be touched by somebody and to find what they say or do touching. So I just wanted to mention that yeah. in relation to Aristotle, that that touching and being touched is is the essence of our uh, as of our being as intelligent, sensitive being. To be sensitive is to be intelligent. Okay, mm. so it's not about reading books. It's actually about a sensitivity at the level of our skins. Um, so, you know, when you say of somebody they're thin skinned, you, you mean they're sensitive. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and therefore they're more likely to, as Aristotle puts it, um, discern differences. Touch knows differences, he says. You know, <laughs> now at a basic level, that's the child, who, you know, hot and cold, um, you, you know, hostile and inhospitable, uh, the flesh of the mother, the breast, whatever. I mean, at very early level, it, we start making distinctions um, and uh, between presence and absence and so on. So touch knows differences because we are in contact with the with the human other. Okay, let's go from Aristotle then, the yeah. ABC of Aristotle and touch, to Christianity, which makes a similar point um, in relation to another tradition, the, the Abrahamic, Hebraic, uh, Judeo-Christian, whatever you want to call it, Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. And that is based on revelation. And in Christianity, as you as you well know, uh, PJ, uh, that comes with with the incarnation that the word became flesh. So the beginning of Christianity as a religion is an act of incarnation, right? Um, which is the opposite of excarnation. But we, we'll come back to that. Yeah, because there has been a temptation even within Christianity to deny that radical message and to go for a more platonic excarnate notion of the soul versus the body of the spirit versus the senses and so on, which is actually betrayal of the true integrity of Christianity, which is that the word becomes flesh. Yeah. Um, it still remains word, but yes. it becomes flesh. Uh, uh, you know, Christ is flesh. Christ is also in relation to the Father and the Spirit. I mean, that's the, the, the mystery of the Trinity. So there's always the flesh becoming more than itself, moving to where I must go so that the Spirit can come. But the Spirit comes, the paraclete comes again and again as flesh as the stranger who, who, as Matthew 25 makes clear, um, uh, gives or receives a cup of cold water, mm. giving and receiving bread and water and wine to our fellow humans is an act of constant, what I call anacarnation. That is to say, the incarnate Christ coming back again and again and again, as he promises to do in Matthew 20, in 25, in the least of these, yeah. you know, the person literally there who, who, who shares food and water with you. Um, and, and usually we think of that as the other, the stranger, you know, but, uh, those say to Christ, but we didn't know, we didn't recognize you. And he says, I was the stranger. Hospice, he repeats, repeats the word, hence our, the root of our word hospitality, hospice. I was the stranger. You didn't recognize me, but mm. I was the stranger. So anyway, but, but back to the life of, of, of Christ, if you think about it, okay, the first act of of, of Christianity is is the incarnation, the emptying of divinity, kenosis into into human flesh, and so Christ is born uh, born um, in a stable with animals. <laughs> if you think yeah. about it, it's very tactile and tangible. Yes. You know, the least of these, he's born as a stranger in uh, in an inn. There's no room for him in the inns of 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 of, of, of Bethlehem. So he, he ends up in a stable with animals, and animals are very important. You know, mm. Christ begins 
uh, with an animal, animals breathing on him. I mean, as we as we see from our Christmas cribs, you know, there is the child Jesus surrounded by animals, and he ends his days on on a donkey. Yeah, you know, Palm Sunday riding into Jerusalem. Um, so there is that uh, extraordinary identification with animals. Although Christianity has not been great uh, for much of it, its history in acknowledging our rapport with the with the animal with the animal universe. Mm. In fact, Buddhism and some of the Eastern religions have been much better at that. The Hindus have you know monkey gods and elephant gods and so on, and Buddhists believe in the sacredness of all sentient beings. Now that is true of Christianity also. But apart from some rare exceptions after Christ, like Francis and of Assisi and uh, others, you know, who, who St. Kevin in, in Ireland, who befriended animals yeah. um, and the natural universe. Uh, Hildegard of Bingen in, in Germany, for example, the greening of all things, veriditas, you know, of nature. Mm. But for, the, for, 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 for long periods of time, Christianity was very platonic. It was dualist of, of, of spirit and soul versus the body. And therefore... Uh, led to a very, very, um, uh, I would say, pathological view, in fact, of sexuality, for instance, mm. which we see nowadays tragically and um, scandalously revealed in child abuse, you know, in, in, in France and Ireland, Canada. Uh, every day you open the newspaper, you realize that certain religions, uh, uh, because they have practiced a form of Puritanism, basically, um, uh, you, you know, it used to be Victorian Puritanism and Jansenism, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it led to this view, you know, women can't be priests in certain churches and you can't get married and, and uh, sexuality is forbidden. Chastity is the only way. And of course, that led to the to the opposite. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the ironies that pornography and Puritanism share this in common. They are they both. Um, our excarnate experiences. They both take us away from the flesh. Yeah. And, um, and that leads to, I think, uh, perverse human behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, not just in the churches, but also, you know, in our entertainment industry, as, as the Me Too movement um, reminded us, there is good touch and bad touch. And one of the reasons why there has been so much bad touch, so to speak, perverse touch, abusive touch, uh, manipulative touch, is because we have not been incarnate beings. We have been excarnate beings, living at a distance from ourselves, living outside of ourselves, uh, living in an alienated fashion to our own bodies. So then the body becomes manipul manipulable. It's yes. not us, it's a thing. Yeah. It's an object, it's an instrument. And that's one of the great dangers. And just back to, to, to Christianity again for a moment. I mean, I have a chapter on, on, uh, on, on Christ and um, uh, working through his his various miracles that, as I say, he begins and ends with animals and he begins and ends his, his mission and ministry uh, with with an act of sharing food. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he's 30, he, he, he changes the water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana. So it's a marriage. It's a sharing of food and wine. And he ends his, his time uh, at the Last Supper. Again, sharing food. And when he's resurrected, what does he do? First thing, he comes to the, the disciples on Lake Galilee and says, um, come and have breakfast. He prepares food for them. Yeah. When he appears to them in the inner room, he says, have you any fish to eat? And then at Maus with the two disciples, they break bread. They recognize him, not in what he says, not in what he looks like, by the way. They, they do not recognize him optically. <laughs> they recognize him tactilely yeah. in the sharing of the food. Yeah. And Christ's mission from the age of 30 to 33 was constantly what touching people yeah. in order to heal them. Right. It's extraordinary. 
If you look at the miracles of healing, they're about touching. 90% of them involve him taking the young girl's hand, putting his, you know, finger into the ear of the deaf person, um, placing his hand on the shoulder or, the, or being touched by, yeah. you say, you know, the woman with the hemorrhaging, uh, the bleed. I yes. mean, she touches the hem of his garment, but it's through touch that she's healed. So Christ is constantly incarnate as a tangible tactile being touching and being touched. And, and, and that's not a purely materialist statement. It yeah. is a spiritual statement. Yeah. Touch is spiritual as much as it is, it is physical. It's really, uh, even as you mentioned that, the example that comes to mind, and I'm still walking through all the ramifications of him making mud and putting it on the blind mm. man's yeah. eyes, which is, yeah. um, and everything you've said here uh, from the Christian perspective is pulled out of the Old Testament, right? Like the idea of the word becoming flesh. I mean, that yeah. is rooted in the idea that God created everything and said it was good. Yes. And that insight, uh, you know, it, just like you said, the, uh, the temptation to become platonic and say material is bad. But again, again, we mm -hmm. see the uh, Christian church return to, I mean, that's not mm -hmm. what Genesis says. Um, so yes, I'm de I definitely feel like Absolutely. I'm tracking you know, with you. You're good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But I, I totally agreed. And, you know, the, the, the good news, so to speak, about the incarnation doesn't begin with the life of Christ. Absolutely precedes mm. uh, in the, in, in, you know, for Christians, the Old Testament and the Torah and the Talmud. The body is absolutely essential and the body is good. Yeah. Uh, as you say in Genesis, uh, six days of creation and, and on the seventh, um, Yahweh, you know, the creator, Yatsar, says it is good. And that includes all the animals, not just the humans, obviously, but all the animals <laughs> yeah. and all the living creatures, uh, you know, that crawl in the bottom of the sea. It is good. All of it is good. Not that we cannot introduce evil into the world, but it is good as created. And that includes the body. And that so the incarnational message begins with Genesis. Yeah. There are two incarnations. The first is the creation of the world in Genesis. And the second for Christians is Christianity. But even within Judaism, the, the Hebrew Bible, again and again, touch is important. I mean, when when Jacob, um, you know, receives the word, the word of God, the word, the name of Israel, mm -hmm. uh, it is after he has um, uh, wrestled, you know, yeah. hand to hand yeah. combat yeah. <laughs> with, with God, the, the dark stranger in the night. Yeah. Um, and and he, 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 he limps ever after, you know, he carries the, the limp. Of, of the mark of, of that contact, that physical tactile contact with God. Um, so it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing just how incarnate uh, the, 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 the two testaments are. And I have some Islamic scholars who are working on Islamic uh, readings of touch and so on. And they have reminded me, I mean, I've been very ignorant of the Islamic tradition, but of the importance, for example, of sharing food in the Hajj, you know, the annual ritual of hospitality. It's all about the sharing of food. So I think it's throughout the Abrahamic traditions, but certainly in terms of, you know, my own Christian upbringing and formation, uh, I was very, very moved by, by this emphasis constantly on healing through touch uh, that Christ represented. And just if I might add another word on animals. Absolutely. Because I do think Christian Christians haven't been great uh, in 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 terms of their relationship to 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 animals, um, uh, and and I think this is a, a certain forgetfulness of 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 how Christ opens us to all sentient beings. 
I mean, curiously enough, even with the Syrophoenician woman, when she comes and asks for the healing of her daughter, and she says, look, you're feeding the dog. Would you treat me as well as you treat the dog? Yeah. And uh, you're giving crumbs to the dog. And Jesus says, your faith has made it. And again, it's the identification with the animal who supposedly is the least of all creatures, but in fact um, is 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 capable of, of being healed, yeah. so to speak, yeah. and of bringing healing. And during COVID, uh, many, many people sought animal therapy yes. with horses, dolphins, dogs, because if you think of it in in, in terms of of um, horses, they're nearly all skin. Yeah. You know, they have hoofs and manes. But apart from that, they're hyper alert and they're herd animals. Coming back to Aristotle and yeah. the social, yeah. you know, our social being. I mean, the, the, uh, horses are herd animals. They don't prey on any other animal. They don't eat meat. Mm. They don't kill what they eat. They're herbivorous. And they're hyper attuned, hypersensitive. That's why you can actually ride a horse with the tip of your finger. They are so sensitive and why they spook easily, you know, because they're aware of of danger, you know, from a mile off or, you know, uh, 20 miles off. They have this hyper hypersensitivity and dolphins likewise are all skin and were very therapeutic, not just for, you know, in COVID that the need became accentuated then, but autistic people, clinically depressed people have found great healing. And dogs, of course, pets were huge just to have yeah. some thing, some living thing to touch. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and to be touched by. So so um, that's part of our response, I think, to the climate crisis is a new relationship to the animal world and the sentient living world around us, which is not necessarily human. We've been very anthropocentric. Being optocentric, that is eye-centered, EYE, um, has also led to an anthropocentric universe. And we need to realize that we are not just, um, uh, you know, masters of the universe. We are guests on this earth and mm. the earth hosts us. Yeah. And until we realize that, that we, we are touched by the earth as much as we touch it, we're going to remain in deep trouble. And I think the, there's a, a segue here to, and I really loved your discussion of taste um, mm. as we talk about touch senses uh, difference, yeah. right? Um, so we look at uh, going back to what we were talking about, the, Abrahamic tradition, you have Abraham welcoming the strangers. And what does that involve? Right. That involves food. And then even exactly. you mentioned Jesus turning water into wine. Um, I think something that correlates with what you were talking about in your book that's very interesting is it's not just that he turned it into wine. It's not for just not just for drinking. He turned it into the best wine. So the mm. taste matters too, like sensing yeah. the differences and the, and the better quality. Um, yeah. So when, when we talk about even a, like uh, synesthesia, uh, those sorts of things, um, can you talk a little bit about how touch relates to taste and especially in the, the creation of discretion and prudence, sensing yeah. difference? Um, and even mm -hmm. I, I feel like our, our loss of practical wisdom in today's culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting, by the way, in COVID, that one of the thing, one of the first senses to go, I mean, we weren't allowed touch, of course, you know, social distancing and all that, but uh, was taste. Yeah, People yeah. lost their sense of taste. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a uh, little ironic. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, th th this is one of the, the frightening things about, uh, you know, a pandemic virus like that, that it can deprive us of our two most basic human senses. Yeah. Um, and vital senses, uh, which for Pl Plato were the lowest, but which for Aristotle and, and Christianity in a different tradition were 
I think, arguably the highest. But yeah, let, let's say a little bit about taste then. Glad you picked up on that. Well, there's two different kinds of tastes. There's taste, which is unilateral. That is to say, you uh, consume mm-hmm. uh, things uh, through taste. So Aristotle, called, you know, defines this as gluttony. It's yes. one of the vices. Right. Um, good taste is when touch comes into play. It's it's therefore tactful taste. Yes. Tact coming you know, from, from touch. Uh, what we would call, you know, true taste, good taste. And that is discerning. So it's when you eat, not just take the example of eating, since we, you know, we're talking here Absolutely. about food and Abraham sharing food with the strangers, Christ sharing food with his disciples and so on. Um, and us all sharing food, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, yeah. Christmas, whatever feast we have. Yes. Um, uh, Hanukkah, you know, uh, the Hajj. Whatever tradition we come from, we share food. And in that instance, ceremony is very important, where we allow our taste to become tactful. So, for instance, in certain religious traditions, you would have, uh, you know, grace before meals. You, you would pray and give thanks to the harvest and the harvesters, to the animals who provided the, the, the meat or the fish or whatever. And this is very important, that instead of just consuming we actually um we actually taste and this is where to be in in the french term to have good taste and aristotle actually says this those who who are connoisseurs of wines and good dishes now we arguably don't want to be elitist here can not everybody can afford good wines and good dishes <laughs> but everybody can eat in a thankful sensitive discerning way where you appreciate and are attentive to what you are eating. Um, and of course, in the Eucharist, uh, Eucharistic ceremonies, this is huge because it's actually the body of God that you're talking about. And this is this is very fundamental to many traditions. Other traditions, it's not necessarily, you know, the Christ figure, it, you know, in Mexican religions, uh, animist religions, it was mushrooms. You know, it can be it can be different things that you're tasting. The first word for God in Sanskrit in Hinduism was ana, food. Hmm. So, but it's not food that you consume gluttonously in a one-way fashion. It's a two-way reciprocal process, and that's where taste becomes tactful. And interestingly, um, our word for 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 being intelligent in our relations with other people and things and is savvy to have savvy and where does that come from savvy a word savvy uh, to be kind of knowing and discerning in our relationship to others which it means actually to be tactful it comes from savoir uh, to know which comes from savourer to savor uh, which comes from sapientia <laughs> the 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 greek latin root you know sapiens sapientia uh, separate, which means to taste. Wisdom was to taste. It's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary thing. Separate comes from savoure, separate, savoure, savour, savvy. Yeah. Um, so that, it's a very fundamental thing that's carried in our everyday language. Yes. Uh, and that, is that where Homo sapiens comes from as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Anyways, that, that Homo just... sapiens. Homo, Homo sapiens means obviously, you know, the the, the, the we translate it as the rational man. Um, but actually, it's the tasting or tasteful man. That's what it means. The sensitive, tasteful, tactful, savvy human being is Homo sapiens. Uh, but we've lost we've lost that tactful taste. 
um, by turning everything or so much into consumption and consumerism, where it's a unilateral, one-way devouring <laughs> uh, uh, of of commodities, food as a commodity. Yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting you you talk about that. This is a discussion that happens in my household. Um, um, the American attitude towards food is not healthy, like as a general rule, and uh, even as it. Even as people try to become healthier by losing weight, one of the ways that they try to solve it is thinking of food as fuel. And I yeah. actually think that's a step further in the wrong direction, even if you can solve, you know, it, you're losing in many ways what it means to be human. And instead of eating with thankfulness, which I think is a better yeah. answer and savoring what you have, I, yeah. uh, Sorry, you're just making, you're making me like reevaluate some of the things that in my own life. I'm like, uh, you know, like, OK, it doesn't always have to be food doesn't always have to be special. Mm. And that's kind mm. of the answer, because like when we treat ourselves, we treat ourselves with ice cream. But I think that's mm. because we have uh, the overages of things like sugar and fat and mm. all that sort mm. of thing is a rejection of taste. And it's uh, a mm. focus on commodity. And so what we do is we distort our taste. And so what we, instead mm. of returning to food as fuel, what we should do is return to uh, moderation and focusing on a taste that's in line with what true health is. That's a very good way of putting it. And very Aristotelian, actually, he goes for the middle way, what he calls the golden mean, because Aristotle, although he doesn't make this precise point, it's a very good one you're making, PJ, but it, it would go something like this. Overeating and undereating are both forms of of, of 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 elementary abuse we're using food in both instances in the first instance gourmandise just to fill ourselves up and satisfy ourselves but by dulling the senses in fact because overeating dulls your senses yes um and and this constant need to to be filled and refilled again and again like a car you know yes. you've got to go to the gas station you've got to go to the supermarket the fridge has to be full um but under eating uh, in even to the point of anorexia, and you know, God knows that can be a very, you know, a very sad and, and tragic situation yes. for people. But it's still food being utilized uh, in terms of, of almost being weaponized. Yes, you know, uh, in in terms of overeating, in terms of expenditure, wealth, um, sort of indulgence, gluttony, um, avarice, and in in the case of undereating. It too can be uh, a manipulation of the body to fit into a certain image, which sometimes, you know, can can be fed by social media, as we as we know, um, the hyper hyper thin, almost, um, you know, it's hard to pristine, yeah. you know, Peter Pan body, whatever. Yeah, it's almost excarnate. You know, it's it's yes. a movement towards excarnation. Well, it is. It is our excarnate because it's photo edited. Like they're not real. They're not real people. Sorry, go ahead. Correct. Yeah, no, 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 but that's absolutely right. And in anorexia and those who, who suffer from, and it can be a form of addiction, you see. Yes. Uh, it, it can be a very sad thing. Um, just as food, it, it, overeating, bulimia, and undereating are forms of addiction. But um, uh, yes, it, it, it's very often living according to a certain psychic optical image of what you should be. Because if you say to somebody who's anorexic, they say, I'm, I feel, why, why, why aren't you eating? I, I'm too fat. And you say, but you're not fat. You're so thin. But they don't see themselves as thin. Yeah. They're actually caught in uh, this, this um, 
you know, cropped image of themselves, which sometimes is fed to them virtually yes. through the entertainment industry or whatever social media, intentionally or otherwise. Yeah. But it is an example of where food can be abused, you know, in our digital communication universe. Absolutely. Um, one thing I, I definitely wanted to touch on, uh, I just did um, uh, an interview with a friend of mine who grew up uh, in Cambodia. She was a missionary mm -hmm. kid, grew up, uh, you know, she, when she was five, she moved from the U.S. to Cambodia. And so we talked about what it meant to be a third culture kid. And you talk about yeah. um, in the West, we're very problem uh, and fixing problem oriented, right? Solution oriented. And that can be really good for medicine. Um, but where we do fail and uh, forgive me for the length of this question, but uh, we fail to abide with people when we can't fix the problem. We fail to yeah. abide with prolonged chronic terminal pain. And uh, mm -hmm. so the the and I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. But uh, so my friend, uh, one, everyone lived together. It was very communal, right? The digital space at that time has now become more prevalent in Cambodia. But at the time, it wasn't. A, <laughs> obviously, they were just getting they got electricity, I think, like four or five years before she got there. Um, so the digital world is just catching up. So, uh, they had a sudden death in one of the families and the mother came out, she lost her daughter and she was just screaming and everyone came from the neighborhood and just sat around her. She tried to hurt herself and they stopped her. But other than that, she went in and she grabbed every piece of glassware she had in the house and she threw it against the tree and just said, I've been forsaken uh, by, by Buddha, by my ancestors. And everyone just sat like the whole neighborhood just sat and watched in silence, just making sure she didn't hurt herself. But they let her smash everything and they just sat with her. No one said anything. And to me, that I mean, that's a completely alien experience. Um, <laughs> is that something uh, is that connected in any way to like this whole optical versus um, uh, touch discussion? Well, I think it does. And I mean, something I talk about in the book when I do get to, you know, psychiatry and, and uh, uh, psychotherapy and medicine, uh, I draw very much from the Greek tradition, um, which, of course, is still alive in, in our medical practices in the West to this day. Uh, I mean, we talked a lot about the Judeo-Christian and biblical Christian, you know, stories of touch and healing. But in the Greek tradition, in the Greco-Roman tradition, there is what's called the Asclepian tradition, which comes from Asclepius, who was one of the two founding fathers of Western medicine. There was Hippocrates, hence we have the Hippocratic Oath, and that was about um, uh, management of pain and mm -hmm. curing of pain. It was sort of a curing model, and we need that, God knows. You know, yeah, if, yeah. if you have a disease, you want surgery, you want, you, you want intervention management. And then there was the Asclepian, which was a different approach uh, and both were compatible, of course, and in fact, complementary. And that was not about fixing through a cure, but being with the person in their pain. And it was presupposed that if you were to be an Asclepian healer, you would uh, be a wounded healer. So Asclepius himself was wounded. So he could recognize wounds in other, uh, others. And so he healed them through touch through um, ceremonies of bathing and mm. incubation, uh, herbal um, uh, remedies, um, and uh, contact with, with animals. 
also. Mm. Even in the dreams, the sleepiest would appear as a cock or as a serpent or as uh, an animal, a horse. And so it was kind of an integral return to our body and a suffering with others so that you could have a healing, uh, even if there could not be a curing, mm. that you would, ex you know, you, you, you would help the other person to live their woundedness. The, one of the implications being we're all wounded at birth, you know, we're, we're yeah. wounded uh, and we carry wounds within us. Every separation from the womb, from the family, from, from loved ones and so on. Life is about learning to live with separation. Yeah. And then reconnection. So the, the Asclepian tradition, um, where people were healed by being with that, each other, uh, in a, in a very embodied ritualistic way was very important. And a lot of what's called alternative medicine today is actually recognizing that, whether it's, you know, psilocybin in, in terms of, of, of healing and uh, depression. Uh, or, or massage therapy, you know, deep tissue massage uh, therapy, herbal medicine, which is huge now coming back again and again, and a, a certain recognition of indigenous traditions in that regard. You know, yoga, breathing, meditation, um, getting back in touch with one's feelings and the body and so on. That That's all very asleepian. So it comes back to your Cambodian uh, situation where you 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 abide with the person in their pain yeah and by sharing the pain uh, a, a certain healing comes even if they cannot be cured so i think that's very important because we live in a cure culture yeah where you know the temptation is to reduce everything to imaging uh, even the technology of surgery now can be done you know through all kinds of lasers and and microscopes and scans and that's hugely important but we must never forget in the hippocratic management, technological management of pain and insurance companies and everything that involves, we must never forget the moment of what was called in the past, the bedside manner, yeah. where the healer, uh, the doctor would be, would be there um, uh, taking, you know, the case history of the person yeah. and attending to them in, in, in terms of a presence. Yeah. And very often, you know, the handshake or whatever it happens to be. My brother who works in palliative care, I mentioned that earlier, mm. he he has argued uh, uh, very much, I'd cite him indeed in the book, um, for the importance of of tactile, asclepian um, healing uh, for those who are dying. Because you can't cure. You can't cure death. Yeah. But you can heal people of their death anxieties. Yes. Of their, of their panic and their fear. Because that's even worse. Yeah. The psychic pain of fear is even worse than, or certainly as bad as uh, very often as a physical pain, which can be treated and, and should and must be treated, you know, with, with painkillers. But it, there's the psychic pain yeah. that can only be treated in this asclepian fashion of being with, being with. And that's a very tangible tactile experience. And it, it has physical repercussions, right? Uh, the, yes. Even though it's psychic, it is it has physical repercussions because of that fundamental connection. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, Levi Strauss, the great anthropologist of the 20th century, um, gives an example of of this, where he's working not in Cambodia this time, but he's working in Brazil, mm -hmm. um, in the Amazon uh, Amazon jungle, and he comes across a, a community uh, where. They have a, and he works with them. He does field work with them. And uh, they have a practice, which he describes, mm -hmm. um, where this woman is, is, is uh, dying. She's yep. bleeding to death. 
she's uh, trying to give birth to a child. It's blocked in the in the in the birth canal, and so she's beating to death. And the community come together and they sit around her in this little hut, and they 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 share a story together as they hold her hand and her feet. They tell a story about. Uh, a, a, a hapless victim caught in a cave and there's a monster outside and they all recite the story, including the woman who's, who's dying of, of, you know, hemorrhaging, she's hemorrhaging to death. And um, they tell the story of, of how this victim then escapes from the cave and overcomes the monster. Hmm. And at that moment, the, the, the young pregnant woman gives, gives birth to the child. And he says, how is this? He says, it's mind over matter. It's actually, Sharing together a, a, a story mm. and the emotive catharsis of that story, its effect that actually then allows the body to relax to such an extent the fear goes, the blood pressure goes down, cortisol, you know, is lessened. And uh, because of that muscle memory of a story of liberation, <laughs> which they share together, it actually works. Uh, a miracle happens and, and the child is born. So it's another example, you know, of, of how the Asclepian tradition of being with somebody, sharing a story, taking time with them when no surgical intervention was possible, um, because there they were in the, in, in the middle of a, an Amazonian jungle. But um, being with the person, mm. in this case, with sort of a touching narrative, so to speak, a shared myth of the liberation of, of a victim uh, from, from a monster, the monster here being pain. Mm. And disease can can bring about an extraordinary healing, and I think that's how how Christ worked. By the way, I mm. mean it's how the Greek healers work. Christ was a wounded healer as well. Yeah, you know, and um, he was the crucified one, and he was the the forsaken one, and so on. It's because of Christ's wounds and the assumption of his wounds that he he was able to to be a healer and continue to be a healer. Absolutely, that's. Um... Really interesting and very kind of inspiring. It's so different from the way that we would ever approach things in our culture and a developed yeah. culture. And yet it's there, you know, yeah. it has been it has been kept, yeah. even if it's been sort of marginalized and, and kept under tabs. But but people, funnily enough, you know, maybe we, we lost it in our mainstream philosophy and theology and our church sort of ecclesiology. Yeah. But but I think people, simple people lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know, at all kinds of levels, you know, the way they shared food, the way they prayed, the way they healed each other. It's, it 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 went on. I think the witch hunting, actually, literally the witch hunting. You know, when when they got rid of that sort of almost nature Christianity. You know, in mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly of Europe, but here in New England as well. You know. Yeah. Um, and the herbal medicines were practiced. Uh, you know, until suddenly they were associated with the witches and the witches were heretics because nature was distrusted. Yeah. And um, and we're just kind of getting back to that now in many respects, a return to sort of a, a greater, uh, more trusting tactile relationship with with nature in terms of this reciprocity principle. Um, so at all levels, you know, it operates at the level of medicine, it operates at the level of of daily culture, it operates at the level of, of the way we, we eat, the way we pray, and certainly the way we relate to the universe. You know, how are we going to drive cars? How are we going to heat our houses? These are really practical questions. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and as we see, you know, in terms of the decisions going on in Glasgow, you know, this is a, we've reached a crisis point. We have to change our ways. Yeah. 
and and we have to be touched by the message, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and touched by nature again, the pain of nature. We have to feel the pain of nature. Yeah. Um, even if it's feeling the pain in our own bodies because of flooding and and, and um, conflagrations and food shortage and and war and you know migration. I mean, it's 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 there's a lot of pain out there. Yes. And we have to feel. You know, we have to be touched by it if we're going to change our change our ways. Absolutely. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, but I did uh, maybe just to wrap things up because I, one, it's kind of the main question we started with, but I also think it was the impetus for your book. And it's one of the bigger chapters, Um, leaving it open-ended. Can you talk about the, the, how the internet specifically, what what do you think are the, the key important issues at stake with excarnation and incarnation in the internet? Well, it's a complex question. And it's one where I learn a lot from my students, actually, because I don't, you know, spend much time, uh, you know, gaming and, and so on. But, but I'm, I'm aware, of course, I teach through the internet and during COVID, all my classes were online. Hmm. So I'm aware of all the advantages and all the pleasure, the magic that the internet can provide and the connectivity, which is itself very important. We can know what's going on in other parts of the world and get all kinds of news feeds, um, which can make us uh, uh, conscious of of how others live. So all that is good. Um, The danger is, and I have a chapter on this, um, that we become, to repeat what we said earlier, Mm excarnate, that we live too much time. I mean, uh, I did a, a poll with my students the other day, sort of a straw poll, and you know, it was between six and eight hours of their day is spent uh, on either iPhones or or computers. Um, but they're living virtually. Yeah. And then they sleep maybe for seven or eight hours. So <laughs> yeah. they're okay. They, they're in their imaginary world there too, dream dream world. But they're they're not sort of attuned to other people uh, as as tactile, tangible presences in their world, as reciprocal relations. Because when we're dreaming, we're not reciprocally relating to other people. And when right. we're on the internet, we're not reciprocally relating to, to, to other people. So that's the danger of uh, isolationism mm-hmm. um, growing from hyper-connectivity. Mm. Now, it is interesting that in a lot of, or at least some of the new experiments in digital technology, some of the digital engineers are becoming aware of the necessity to try and introduce some level of reciprocity yeah. into into the media. Yeah. And that's where haptic technology comes in. And there are, and I mentioned that in the, in the conclusion to the book when I talk about COVID and and sort of the, the some of the new developments in haptic technology which enable people to have long distance hugs for example that you could put on a vest and actually experience uh, being hugged. Really? So it wasn't just optical. Yes, there was an, op- huh. an actual hugging taking place. Um, and there, there are experiments of, uh, again, wearing certain headsets and, and vests where you can, for instance, was a tree experiment done in this regard, VR, where, um, you know, you can see the trees and smell the, the leaves and the and 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 the flowers and the but and then f- feel the the actual um branches and 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 uh, bow swaying mm-hmm. so i mean you know we're into kind of a, an almost sci- sci-fi world here but yeah. but it's happening that um the the digital 
technology that has been so optocentric to date is recognizing the need where possible to open out to the other senses. And this is very important because we need touch to be in all of the senses. I mean, that's you mentioned the word synesthesia earlier, yeah. which which means, you know, for those it's a bit of a technical term, you know, the crossing of the senses. And we need to bring touch back into sight. Mm-hmm. We need to bring touch back into taste, as we mentioned earlier, to turn it into a, a sort of a, a gourmet discernment uh, and sensitivity to food rather than a devouring consumption. And, and it, same with, with smell, you know, that flair is that uh, sort of native savvy we have when it comes to our olfactory experience. Um, and, and very, very important. I mean, in, in certain animals uh, where, where smell is very important, so smell and taste. And in all of them, we need the reciprocity principle um, at work. And I do think that we need to keep a dialogue going, a very creative, mm. collaborative dialogue between the digital as our tactile fingertip and, uh, you know, which is our unique identifying point, even on a passport, right? Our fingerprint, um, the most sensitive part of our being on the one hand, and then the digital code that uh, opens up this virtual world of hyperconnectivity uh, on the other hand. It's a both hand. It's yeah. not an either or because it become, becomes an either or. We're back into Platonism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And we're sort of saying, you know, spirit, uh, virtual world versus <laughs> physical, uh, tangible embodied world. And that's the danger. Yes. We got to keep the two in a creative, in a creative dialogue. And I do think, and this is something I argue in the penultimate chapter of the book, that a lot of movies, you know, I, I mentioned Ex, Ex Machina, mm-hmm. um, Mirror series. Um, Westworld series, um, her, you know, some great movies yeah. and, and, and TV series that where, where the digital technology, the digital entertainment media is itself becoming self questioning. Yes. And is showing the absence of touch in our culture, in our digital culture. So it's the digital imaginary itself that is reflecting on itself, critiquing itself and opening out towards, reaching out towards touch. Yeah, a bit like Yahweh and Adam, you know, in, in, <laughs> on the Sistine Chapel in yeah. Michelangelo's beautiful uh, uh, painting, reaching out finger to finger. You know, the two the two digits, the virtual coming from <laughs> coming from the skies, um, and and then the human coming from the body, the the Adam or Adamic body, and and that's the kind of touching of the two digital. Yeah. Um, media that we need the yeah. body and 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 the internet uh thank you so much and it's always a uh, sometimes when these discussions come up it can be very pessimistic but i love how you end on a really positive note and uh with a solution and a move forward um thank you for coming in today thank you for talking about your book uh touch um if <laughs> i think it's pretty obvious what the title of the book is from this discussion we'll have a link to that in uh, uh down below but uh dr kearney real pleasure thank you it's been a pleasure. And let me just say, as you as you end on that hopeful note, you know, we probably have the scientists tell us, you know, 30, 40, maybe 50, if we're lucky, years to go on this planet if we don't do something radical. Mm. So it's very important to get back in touch with touch if we're going to keep going. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Been a great pleasure. Bye bye. <laughs>